I don't know how many of you remember uh, the show Candid Camera. Remember Candid Camera? Uh, I'm old enough to remember this when it was <laughs> being aired on, on TV. Uh, Candid Camera, for those of you that aren't familiar, it was, it was sort of a, a hidden camera, um, I guess a prank show. Uh, started in the 1960s, you know, it was run by Alan uh, Funt. I always want to say Funk, but I, it's Funt, right? Alan Funt. Uh, hosted this show, and, and they would set up all of these silly things. But one of them was such a classic thing. They ran this in 1962 in black and white. There was no color on the TV. Can you believe it? Um, and it was this, I, you've probably seen this recreated in, in many ways, uh, where somebody would, would get on an elevator, and they, and they wouldn't know what was going on. But then a bunch of other people who did know what was going on would follow them and get on the elevator. And three people would get on the elevator after them. And all three of them would face the back of the elevator. You know, you ever seen this? First person gets on and faces the back of the elevator. And the person who just got in the elevator had this quizzical look on their face like, what in the world? And then a second person got on the elevator, faced the back. Then a third person got on the elevator, faced the back. And so what does the first person do? they face the back. <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, they did it over and over, and it's, it's so, they did one, and it was sort of a, a, a younger man who was maybe slightly awkward in his own skin, you know, anyway, but, you know, very nicely dressed, but he got on and immediately turned backwards, and then they opened the elevator doors back up, and the other three people had turned to the side, and he had immediately turned to the side, <laughs> and then they turned to the other. I mean, everything that they did, he did, he was wearing a hat, so the other two gentlemen that were in the elevator took off their hats, and he took his hat off. And I mean, it was a riot. One guy did it, but he did it kind of hesitatingly. You know, he kind of pretended that he wasn't going to. He was sort of looked around at all these people facing backward, and, and, and you know, you can see his gears turning, thinking, well, I'm not doing that. But he started to anyway. He started, uh, you know, he, he made, I forget what he, what he was reaching for, but he he slowly but surely, he, he kept kind of making excuses, and sure enough, he faced backward pretty soon. That idea of, of being part of a crowd and of not wanting to not be part of a crowd, to stick out, it, it's powerful, right? I mean, that's just a jokey, you know, sort of a thing, but we see this all the time, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad. You know, we teach our, our young kids about this idea of peer pressure, right? Don't cave into peer pressure. Sometimes you're going to be in situations where everybody around you may be doing a thing. That doesn't mean you need to do that thing. Now, some of the things are, are relatively benign. Some of them can be dangerous, even life-threatening, right? But we see the power, the, the, the allure of wanting to be like everybody else. As you turn in your Bibles this morning to Joshua chapter 24, it's the very last chapter in the book of Joshua. We're going to say goodbye to our friend Joshua this morning. Oh. I like Joshua. And it's been fun to study this narrative, to see some of these stories uh, anew and and sometimes we see fresh things in them. But this morning, we're going to bid a, a fond farewell to Joshua as we wrap this up. But I love uh, this idea that's in this passage. And right away, we see in, in chapter 24, verse 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. 
And he summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. I said last week that a lot of times chapters 23 and 24 are lumped together. They seem like part of a larger conversation, and in many ways, they really are. I mean, thematically, they they really go together nicely. But you do see here that there seems to be a scene change, right? I mean, this this seems fairly clear to me to be a new setting. And Shechem, I don't know if you remember, uh, this is where, this is a special location to the people of Israel. This is uh, where they had the, when they, when they gathered on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim to renew their commitment to the Mosaic law and to recite these blessings and curses from those mountaintops as the law was read out loud to the whole assembly. It was here, it was at Shechem. That's right near Shechem. Shechem, furthermore, is the place, if you go back even farther to Genesis chapter 12, when Abram is first called Abram and his family arrive in this promised land and they arrive at Shechem and God says, Abram, I'm giving you this land, this place, I'm giving it to you. And it's where Abram sets up a very special sacrifice to commemorate that event. So it's a special place for the people of Israel. And Joshua now, after already having had a conversation with them last week in chapter 23, he says, all right, we're all gonna meet in Shechem. You remember last week he's told them, I'm not long for this world. <laughs> I'm about to go the way of all flesh, he says. You know. So he knows his, his days are numbered. And now they all gather at Shechem. In verse two, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And that I, I always like to remind us of this. Here's this reference again to Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham. But that when God called him from this place, Haran, you know, beyond the Euphrates, it wasn't because Abram was incredibly special, because he'd been seeking the Lord. I mean, the Bible tells us he hadn't, he wasn't. They served other gods. They served idols, they served false gods. Yet God called him. And he goes way back to the beginning of their history as a people. And he says, verse three, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and I led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to to possess But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. You see what he's doing? Last week, he's done some of the same thing. Remember, we talked about this. He is reminding them of God, of who God is, of what God has done. But he's reminding them last week in chapter 23 of a a nearer history, a more recent history. Now he goes all the way back. He's doing a similar thing. He wants to continue to remind them about God and of his works. But now he goes all the way back to this call of Abram when he very first says, I'm gonna make you into a nation. I'm gonna make a a people out of you. You're gonna be so numerous, your offspring. It's gonna be 
like the sand of the seashore, you know, or like the stars in heaven. Can you count the stars? No. That's what your offspring is going to be like. That's what I'm going to do with you. And he takes them all the way back and gives them this history. Verse 6, then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. And then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. If you don't remember this story, we didn't talk about this together, but go back and look this story up. It's fantastic. This is the one with the whole talking donkey thing. But I wouldn't listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, that is, instead of cursed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the, Amor the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Isn't that beautiful? We've talked about that before. God had promised them that this would happen, and now he just reminds them, it has happened. You're there now. It's, you're living in these cities that you didn't have to build. You're reaping the benefits of, I mean, think of some of these crops like uh, olives or figs or some of these things where even once you plant them, it's going to be years before you see any fruit. And they just get to move into this place and it's all just there. You know, God says, I've done this for you. I'm going to remind you of this history where I've had my hand on you almost like my hand on your shoulder just guiding you and going before you and clearing the way for you, giving all these enemies into your hand. I've done all this. So verse 14, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. We got to stop right there. See, something was going on here. We've had much of the same conversation before. Joshua had much of the same conversation in chapter 23. There's this very similar model of this history, this reminder of what God had done, and then saying, now follow his commands, follow him. But here, this is really interesting. He says, put away those gods those other gods that your fathers served, those gods from Egypt even. How long has it been since they've been in Egypt? You know this. Well, maybe you don't know this. 
40, I mean, 40 plus years. I mean, they spent 40 years in the wilderness and now they've had, you know, we don't have an exact timeline. So maybe by now, 42 years, 43 years, you know, it's hard to say. But at least 40 years. And still, there's evidence here that some of them are retaining those other gods. Now, it's not 100% clear if what he means is they physically have idols that they've tucked away or if they just have held on to them in their hearts and in their minds. But there's this, the fancy word for it is syncretism. Syncretism is when you sort of mesh two things that maybe don't necessarily belong together. And they had taken the worship of the one true God and mixed it up with some other stuff. It's not as if they'd completely turned their backs on God, but there were these persistent things that had snuck in and they'd, they'd tried to mix them all together. And God here says, again, you gotta stop that. It's time to stop that. It's time to put away those gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house we will serve the Lord. What Joshua really does here, and again, what God really does, I mean, God is speaking through Joshua. You see most of that passage that we've just read so far, it's in the first person. It's as if God is saying, you know, I did this, I did this. Joshua is just speaking the words to the people. But he says, it's time now to make a decision. You can't have this anymore. You can't have this anymore. You need to choose this or this. You need to give this up. It's time to make a choice. This is the decision point right now. This is it. And I'm going to call you to this. Now the people answered in verse 16. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And Joshua says something interesting. You're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. 
And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And then he said, verse 23, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. See, here it is again. They are among you. Physical presence? I, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems like that to me. But at very least, this mental presence, you know. He says, they are among you. Put them away. And turn your heart, incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve. In his voice, we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth tree that was the sanctuary of the Lord, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord, excuse me. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. When the people express here, yeah, we agree. You're right. All those things you said, I mean, some of them they repeat right, right back, you know. Yeah, it was God that did all this. It was God that delivered us out of slavery. It was God that drove our enemies out in front of us. We are here, and it is our desire to serve the Lord. I don't think, this is somewhat speculative, right? But I don't think they're simply telling Joshua what they think he wants to hear. I think at least to a certain degree, there is some sincerity there, right? You know how it is when somebody just sort of tells you what you want to hear? Or maybe you're gullible like me and you're not aware of when it's happening. <laughs> you know, this happens sometimes. Sometimes it happens with, with our kids, you know? always pick on our kids, our poor kids, right? But sometimes we say, now, this is what I want you to do. Yep, I understand. I completely understand. And they're just sort of saying the, I'm not sure, though, that that's what's going on. I think they have some sincerity about this. I think they have some understanding. Yeah, we, we do believe all that. We do believe God has been our God and that he's done all these things and that he's called us and he's, we've watched the miracles. We saw that thing, the crossing of the Jordan River. That alone was so incredible. We'll never forget it. The whole business with Jericho and the walls just like falling over. I mean, we've watched this. Yeah, Joshua, we get it. We are with you. And we don't want God to be against us, so we're all in. I think there was some sincerity there. But, spoiler alert, it doesn't stick. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't stick. And Joshua, in his capacity of, of speaking as a prophet here, speaking for the Lord, I, I think that's where this, 
this line from him that says, you can't do it. You won't do it. I mean, I think that's God and God's foreknowledge and God's omniscience that there too Joshua is expressing, saying, "Ah, I don't think you're going to do it. (laughs) And the people say, no, 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 we will, we will. We're, We're totally on board. And so they set up this stone and Joshua says, okay, this, I love the anthropomorphizing of, this, of the stone. This stone heard everything you said. <laughs> I mean, we get the stone didn't actually have ears and, you know. But I, I just love that, that picture, you know. It says, here it is. This is our, you're going to walk by this place because I won't be here to remind you, but this stone, we all said this thing. We all agreed on this thing. That's the witness We'll hold you to it. And the people said, yeah, 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 yeah. That's our witness. And after these things, verse 29, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. Remember when we said he was old and well advanced in years? Now we got a number put to it, 110. He was old and advanced in years. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt. Stop right there. One of the things that happened shortly before Joseph's death is he said, please don't let me be buried here in Egypt. God will take you out of Egypt. And when he does, will you please take my bones with you and take them back to my home? You know, I love that. And so they did. In the piece of land, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phineas's son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. And there's the end of the story, as far as Joshua is concerned. And it's a really lovely, you know, we use this term eulogy. We just had one here yesterday for Debbie Hatton's mom, Nancy. We had these eulogies. And I've said this before, it's a word that comes from the Greek that that means words of praise. I mean, this is sort of a a eulogy about Joshua, these words of praise that, that is to say, while he was alive, and in fact, even while the elders that worked with him and under him were alive, even after he died, the people of Israel followed the Lord. Now, what it doesn't say, what you might gather from what we've already said, is that after they they die, we start to have problems, big ones, (laughs) over and over and over. But it's a very lovely statement here. While they were alive, the people did. They followed the Lord. This is a testament to Joshua's leadership. This is a testament to who he was. And it's part of the reason I love Joshua. Now, he wasn't perfect. 
We see in a lot of ways, he's a great guy. Remember way back at the beginning of his story where we first see Joshua burst onto the scene, he's one of the, the 12 spies sent into the land. One of only two who say, let's trust the Lord. God said he would give us this land. There is nothing that will stop us from taking the land. Let's go. While the other 10 all said, oh, we can't do it. They're too big, they're too strong, they're too many. Joshua says, so, so we see right from the outset something about Joshua's character. We see that he commands military forces early on. He's one of those mighty men of God. And we see a strong leadership here that that faith, that, that strong faith in the Lord continues and it persists and it, it carries him through. We also see some problems we see at times that Joshua struggles with some fears, with some doubts. We see some perhaps lapses in, in leadership. I, I suggest that he at very least abdicated his leadership to a large degree so that by the end of his rule, his leadership of the nation, they still haven't finished taking all of this land. Why not? I mean, should he not have driven them? He's not a perfect guy. That's part of the reason I like him, though. Because I have a secret to share with you. I am not a perfect guy either. <laughs> and I have an even more painful secret to share with some of you. You're not perfect either. <laughs> and so, in these weaknesses even, I mean, we get to see us but what we really see is joshua's faith and joshua's devotion and the crux of this whole this whole passage to me you already know what it is because it's in your bulletin as the title of the sermon although half of you just now look down at your bulletin to see <laughs> You did it. I saw you. <laughs> but the, what really sets this apart from last week, and the reason I really wanted to separate this, it's not just because of the change of scene because they go to Shechem. This is what this is all about here. Is It's brilliant statement that Joshua makes in the middle of all this at the end of verse 15 where he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is, is the thing above all else that I love about Joshua. That's the thing that has tended to set him apart. Again, from the very first time that we see mention of him as one of these 12 spies, that he says, no, as for me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this, I'm gonna say, let's go, which made him an, a, a real unpopular guy. Because you've got these other 10 saying, no, we shouldn't go. And then the people even get to have this sort of democratic vote, you know, which always goes well in God's people. <laughs> and they vote and they say, no, let's not go. And they get to a point where they're angry at Joshua. And still he says, we ought to go. Why are we not doing this? God already promised us the land. Let's go. And here at the end of his life, he is still expressing that same thing. Is he perfect? No. But I love this decision point for him where he says, okay, 
You have watched, we have watched God do this and this and this and this and this. We've watched him deliver us miraculously in the greatest sense of that word. We've all seen it. And I want to remind you of God's promises that if we follow him and obey him and make him our God, our one and only God, he is going to continue to bless us. If we don't, it's going to go badly. And so here's what I want to call on all of you to do. Follow the Lord your God. Obey the Lord your God. Be devoted to the Lord your God. Have nothing in your vision other than him and his holiness and greatness and righteousness. That's what I want you to do. But here's the thing. You might not. And here's where I am today. I don't care what you do. As for me, this is what I'm doing. (laughs) That is the magic sauce. That's it. That's it. It's such a, we look at things so simple as getting into an elevator and turning backwards, and it's so hard to be the only person in an elevator not facing this way. But Joshua just says, I don't care. And this becomes a problem for them. And this is what God told them would happen for them. He said, part of the reason I want you to completely get rid of all these people is because if you don't, it's going to be like you getting into an elevator and they're all facing this way. And you may know you're supposed to face this way, but it's going to be really, really, really hard for you. And little by little, you're going to turn this way. And they did it over and over over and over and over and over and over. (laughs) I didn't count, you know, but so many times. And the reality is we have that same weakness. We'll do it too. Let's just be honest. It's hard for you. Let's just make this very, very personal again. It's not just hard for us collectively let's face it it's hard for you to face the right way and to not turn the same direction everybody else is when you look around and you're like i stick out like a sore thumb here this is weird and and you start to play games in your head it's not like it's not that i don't trust god it's not that i don't believe him I mean, in my heart, I still think God's the best, but for sake of expediency and for sake of not feeling like a silly fool, I'll just face the back of the elevator. You know, I'll just do this. It's okay. In my heart, I'm still facing this way. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. After a while, you walk into the elevator and you'll face the back wall without even giving it a second thought. Your God knows this about you. And that's why they are called to make this decision. And you and I, I think, are still, to this day, brought to a decision point where you are called on to just decide in your heart, this is what I'm going to do. It's so interesting. I mentioned 
the memorial service we had yesterday and the Holy Spirit so frequently, you know, weaves things together in ways that I couldn't have possibly thought out, you know. But it just turns out that one of the scripture passages that had been real special to Debbie's mom in her later days was the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. Very similar story. King Nebuchadnezzar sets up this idol and everybody's bowing down to the idol. You know, the special music plays and they're all like, oh, bow down to the idol. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we can't do that. Do you know how foolish they must have felt at times? I mean, everybody... Do you know how easy it would have been to just say, well, God, you understand, you know, in our heart of hearts, we still, but, you know, we don't want to lose our heads either or be thrown into this fiery furnace that's been built for this purpose. And so we're just, you know, we'll just make a show of this. It's no big deal. We'll just face the back of the elevator for a minute, you know. But it's okay. No, no. No. It's another example of this where they just say, "Uh uh-uh, we are not doing that. That is not going to happen. Sorry. And the king says, if you don't do this, do you understand? I'm going to throw you in this furnace. They say, yep. But two things. One, if God wants to save us from that furnace, he can. But two, even if he doesn't want to save us from the furnace, here's the thing. We're not going to do it. We refuse. Three guys, hundreds if not thousands of people all bowing down to this thing. And you got these three guys that just say, no. Mm -mm. I don't care how many people face the back of the elevator. We won't. That is the sort of decision that you and I continue to be called on to make in our hearts. And I just said it again, our hearts, but really it's my heart. It's your heart. You can only make a decision for you. And I know that Joshua says, as for me and my house, but you know, it's, it's kind of terminology that they use at that point. The head of a household had far more sway and influence and and power in those times than they do now. And so let's just make it very, very personal. You're not called on to wait on the head of your household to make a decision for you, you know. The point is you and I have to make that decision for us, for ourselves. And will you do it? Will you say, as for me, I'm going to follow God no matter what. That's it. For me, I'm going to trust that what he says is utterly true. For me, I'm going to obey. I'm going to live in obedience to him and the things that he's called me to do, I'll do them. For me, I'm going to avoid those things that he has said I ought to avoid. For me, myself, God is going to, I got made fun of last time I used this word, but I'm going to use it anyway, occlude. Some people didn't know the word occlude, but do you know what occlude is? An occlusion is something that blocks your vision of something else behind. I will allow nothing to occlude my vision of my God. 
And one of the sayings was that something as the smallest coin in your pocket can occlude your vision of God if you hold it close enough to your eye. You just make a decision. I will not do that. I will not. As for me, it's possible everyone around me will be doing it. It's possible my brothers and sisters in Christ will be doing it at times. I don't care. Here's my decision. Here's where I am going to stand. As for me, this is where I stand. That's a hard decision sometimes. It just is. But it's the right decision. It's the strong decision. It's the brave decision. It's the God-honoring decision. And I believe that when you and I make that decision and say strongly, as for me, this is where I'm going to stand, even if I am the only person on the face of the earth left that does it, this is where I stand. I believe strongly. I'm not talking about health and wellness prosperity, right? Riches, and you understand. But I believe that God will honor that in your life. When you don't, he won't. I don't know how else to put it other than that. But I want to leave us with this picture of Joshua, 110 years old, saying, people, this is what you're being called to do. But listen, we're not going to put this to a vote. (laughs) At the end of the day, I don't care what you do. As for me, this is where I'm going to stand. And I want you to make that decision about where you are going to stand. Our Father God, we confess to you that so many times, just like the people of Israel, we we try to have you plus a bunch of other things. We try to mix them up and make a new recipe out of them. And as I've said so many times, God, it's not that all those things are in and of themselves bad, but we just mix them up with you, with our vision of you, with our following of you, with what we love and desire, with who we obey, who we follow. God, help us, like Joshua's example, to be fiercely committed to you. Regardless of of what anyone or everyone around us does. That we will make this decision in our heart that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how tough it gets, that we will continue to say, as for me, I follow you, God. As for me, I trust you. As for me, I love you. Above all else, I adore you. As for me, I'm going to worship you. As for me, You have my obedience, my servitude, my faithfulness. As for me. God, as we so frequently do, if there's anyone here with us in whatever form or capacity today that hasn't simply said, as for me, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. We pray that this is that day. 
that they will recognize that our Lord Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect, righteous life so that he could be given up as a perfect sacrifice on my behalf, on the whole world's behalf. And all we have to do is put our faith and trust in him and in his work and become a follower of Jesus. Say, as for me, I'm going to put my faith in this, not in myself, not in external things, just Jesus, and be saved. If you've not done that, today's the day. There's nothing stopping you. You don't have to jump through any hoops first. You don't have to memorize any creeds. You don't have to get right before you come to the Lord. The Lord will make you right. All you need to do is say, all right, as for me, I'm going to trust God and what he said. I'm going to trust Jesus. That's it. If you haven't done that, do that. Start there. Father, we love you. We thank you for our time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the study of Joshua. We pray that you bless it in our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.